This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I would like to begin from uh, the contemporary philosophy of biology perspective uh, on the uh, definition of life. And then a few words uh, again from the philosophical perspective on uh, the origin of life and then uh, uh, some ideas on the theological side. Okay, so this is basically the plan. So uh, if those uh, who work in philosophy of biology today, uh, obviously the point of departure for them is more phenomenological uh, from our perspective, less ontological. They basically the point of departure when they try to define what life is, they look at what we may call properties of living organisms. Uh, this is actually what scientists do. Uh, what philosophers of science do, they, uh, the first step they take, they, they look at those lists of properties of life and they try to structure them. Uh, so those hallmarks of life, uh, according to uh, one at least uh, and very interesting uh, proposal, uh, you can divide them into two groups. Uh, the first one uh, has uh, the criteria that are classified as real. Uh, this is how they are classified because they refer uh, to individual entities. So you look at an individual entity in front of you and you uh, look at the way it behaves, uh, you may name or use those properties that uh, you can see listed and decide whether this thing is alive or not. But there are other, uh, there's another group of uh, criteria which are classified as potential criteria because they refer to groups of entities. Uh, so this is interesting because, uh, so th the question is to what extent uh, which uh, criteria you have to take into account to decide what is alive and what is not, and to what extent you need the criteria for from the second group, where uh, those criteria uh, are referred to groups of organisms and over time. So that would mean it is rather impossible for you to decide looking at just one organism here in front of you. You would have to look uh, at uh, this organism uh, in its environment across time and space. So this is the, one of the uh, interesting philosophical uh, questions for contemporary philosophers of biology. Next step that they take is they uh, now uh, what biologists do. They take or they uh, they they refer to those lists of hallmarks of life and they strive to define life. What philosophers of biology do. Uh, today, they try to navigate through many definitions uh, of life that uh, were proposed, and they try to uh, categorize them. So uh, one of the predominant uh, classes would be uh, the one that uh, defines life in terms of uh, energy changes and transformations. Uh, and these definitions may take a more mechanistic, chemical, and bio uh, biochemical, but also a more holistic approach. Then we have uh, those definitions that are uh, classified as structure-related definitions of life. They, again, may take a more reductionist, cell-centered or cell-related uh, approach, uh, or more hierarchical approach, uh, which uh, may be also classified as uh, an emergentist approach. Then there are uh, another uh, 
definitions or another class of definitions uh, which take into account environmental interactions uh, uh, between entities and environment in which uh, they uh, exist. And this uh, allows, uh, that's the idea, this allows us to, certain types of relationships with environment allow us to classify uh, entities as alive. There is evolution-related uh, class of uh, definitions of life, and as uh, the name says, they are based on the categories of uh, related to evolutionary transformations, heredity, variation, mutation, adaptation, speciation, etc. But uh, popular nowadays, more and more, are information-related definitions of life. Uh, so here they may take either more minimalist or a genetic, uh, a more robust genetic approach, uh, although many will find those definitions still uh, very much uh, reductionist. Uh, we don't have time to enter here into the conversation on what is, infor what is information and what biological information might be. These are, this is another scope uh, or, or uh, mm, today a distinct uh, division of uh, philosophy of science. And then uh, we have um, other definitions uh, that are uh, um, less maybe popular or less developed, but uh, still uh, proposed by some uh, scholars in philosophy of biology. So we have cybernetic approaches, generalist approaches, vitalist approaches uh, even, uh, or uh, parametric uh, approaches. Okay. So these are the classifications that, uh, this is the classification that uh, you may uh, build referring to uh, what philosophers of biology do. But they also uh, enter what we may call a meta level of analysis of those definitions of life. And this is, uh, here it becomes, uh, the story becomes even uh, more interesting. Uh, because uh, the claim that they make uh, is really interesting. Uh, they say that uh, that traditionally both biologists and philosophers of biology, when searching for a definition of life, aim at providing sufficient and necessary conditions. And this type of definition, um, or this type of definitions that are being offered, uh, are being called in uh, the jargon of philosophy of biology today, today real, ideal, or philosophical definitions. Uh, we may also find uh, those who claim that these are essentialist definitions. So the idea is that there is some uh, sort of essence of uh, living organisms that you or we should be able uh, to define uh, in one and unequivocal um, way. Uh, so that, such, such no notion uh, should be available and we should look for it. Uh, and from the talks that we had today, uh, yesterday and today, we know uh, we, may, we may say already that this is an extremely ambitious uh, uh, task uh, that they put in front of themselves, uh, which uh, faces many uh, difficulties, right? Uh, especially uh, those uh, margin uh, cases, or uh, where we may think, for example, again about viruses about uh, bacteria and insects that are frozen, but then can defrost and still uh, be active. Uh, we may think about social uh, insects, uh, and the question then arises whether they are a plurality of uh, individual organisms or maybe one organism. 
On the other extreme, uh, when you take, for example, uh, a definition that concentrates of, on metabolism, you may uh, look at fire, and fire consumes uh, a material, and there is uh, some sort of metabolism going on there, you may say. So uh, those marginal cases are uh, difficult uh, for uh, a definition that would like to be an essentialist uh, definition. So that's why uh, many think that we should abandon this project today and we should follow, uh, for example, the uh, Wittgensteinian uh, family resemblance definitions. So again, you look for necessary and sufficient conditions, but you are less strict uh, in this and you adjust your definition when you, are, when you encounter weird situations and weird cases of uh, things that uh, uh, may not be easy uh, uh, may, not, may not be easy to classify them uh, within this strict uh, uh, idea of the essence of life. Even more popular uh, among uh, practicing scientists uh, are definitions that philosophers would classify as operational and working definitions, uh, right? Uh, so uh, biologists, they simply approach the biological material uh, and they uh, simply oftentimes not even reflecting that much on what the essence of life is. They just do their job and it works for them. So why would we spend time on trying to narrow it down and provide an essentialist definition? Just let them do what they do and it's efficient and it works. Then we have uh, nominal uh, definitions. Another suggestion, abandon essentialist definition and uh, just uh, look at the way all, for example, people in sciences, in different uh, depart, uh, divisions of science, use the term uh, life and living uh, thing. And just maybe this suffices for us. But because, again, we have this pragmatist uh, approach uh, in the back of our head, that's enough. Uh, then we have demonstrative and or ostensive definitions. Uh, so uh, even broader and simpler not necessarily scientific, uh, just a shared observation uh, uh, of things around us uh, based on our access to uh, what surrounds us. Maybe this is enough uh, for us to define uh, life. Uh, and even more uh, loose, I would say, uh, stipulative uh, definitions. So these are various uh, alternatives that are being proposed today. The main uh, line of division, uh, I think, uh, is between uh, those, again, essentialist uh, definitions and operational definitions. Uh, and, uh, mm, and those who would like to uh, support the one or uh, the other option. Uh, based on this plurality of options and the difficulty uh, in choosing any one of these at all the stages that I described here, just uh, practice, uh, you know, biological practice, then, then defying uh, those hallmarks of life, then definition, and then the meta level of analysis, based on the complexity of this debate and impossibility so far of providing one definition, many uh, embrace definitional skepticism. Uh, so uh, it may have an epistemological or ontological uh, um, ground. So uh, those who support the first option, uh, they claim that due to the diversity of life, we will never be able 
to provide a general definition of like and we should abandon the project. But it may be the fact that there is a definition, but we will never uh, come uh, to uh, finding it. Or you may have ontological uh, skepticism where uh, the claim is that the category of life in itself is heterogeneous and it's not a natural kind in itself. Uh, some uh, go as far as to say that the distinction between what is living and non-living is simply a human uh, distinction, human-made distinction, and it has not, uh, no support in, um, uh, in nature. And therefore, uh, more than this, uh, all our ideas change with the development of science and technology, and they are basically inaccurate. Uh, and again, embracing uh, some more pragmatic attitude, many would say, science works and it does what it should do, so why bother? And here enters uh, Aristotle, uh, at least for some thinkers today, which is uh, interesting. Mm. Aristotle, uh, who uh, on the one hand, uh, and I think it's may refer to the first talk that we, uh, the second one we heard from uh, Christopher uh, Frey. Uh, Aristotle, who on the one hand uh, definitely would be in support, because, uh, okay, so what uh, many philosophers of biology say, they are surprised with this fact, but they say that their uh, understanding of the situation as of today is that this essentialist definition, the search for essentialist definition of life is still there and many people actually try to find this essentialist or form or propose an essentialist definition of life. So Aristotle would de definitely like uh, the uh, idea of uh, defining the essence of a living being, but at the same time his essentialism would be, in my opinion, really different from what essentialism is, un uh, what is understood as being uh, an essentialist definition today. Uh, because if I, as I said, uh, those contemporary definitions would try to find necessary and sufficient uh, conditions or necessary or, or insufficient properties of life and they would defy what a living creature is. So on the one hand, Aristotle you may say that's the same. Uh, we have heard about him listing uh, those properties of living uh, organisms, uh, vegetative, animal, or human life, right? Uh, and the same passage that uh, Dr. Uh, or Professor Frey referred to uh, yesterday, you may read this passage uh, as, uh, like, or try to see in it Aristotle uh, simply uh, saying that uh, life is defined by those different properties of living organisms that he finds uh, around uh, that we find around uh, ourselves uh, but the truth is that for him uh, those powers uh, of animate beings they are indicators of life but not constitutive constitutive features of life and those more than this those indicators of life uh, those properties of life they need for Aristotle, I would argue, well, a grounding that would be a metaphysical grounding, a glue, we may say, that holds them together. Uh, so they need a cause that goes, in a way, beyond the, the efficient cause that is available for physical, quantifiable, and empirically verifiable um, verification. And here, 
Uh, and I'm wondering what uh, Maureen, uh, Professor uh, Condi will uh, say uh, after my talk. But here I would argue that we have to distinguish two levels of um, what we know uh, or uh, what Aristotle defines as material and formal causation. So I would argue that the, at the first level of material and formal causation, when we think about matter, we think about stuff, again, available to empirical and mathematical description. From the Thomistic point of view, this will be materia secunda. Form here would be uh, a geometrical shape. Uh, that's why morphe, uh, hylomorphism, unfortunately takes name from morphe and to, many tend to stop here, which is completely wrong. Uh, because uh, this is again available to empirical and mathematical description. I would add that you may classify here also the structure of a living being plus all the dynamic interactions of parts, which again, we can verify empirically, but it will be still the first level of uh, material and formal constitution for Aristotle. But he goes deeper and he has the second level of material and formal causation where on the side of mother, we don't speak anymore about physical stuff, but we speak about the principle of potentiality that is the possibility of there being something at all. This is a very profound uh, principle from the philosophical point of view. Scientists may uh, not find it uh, as profound as we do, but uh, for philosophers, it is uh, something really profound. And on the formal side, uh, we have... Uh, we can see actually how Aristotle struggles with formal cause, uh, trying to find a proper terminology. Uh, so we have paradigma, and the deepest, uh, I think, uh, formulation that he uses for uh, substantial form, hologos uh, 2t and a9, which means the statement of the essence. That would be a metaphysical principle of actuality, something that is not available directly uh, in, uh, for, um, uh, for, for, uh, for a scrutiny, uh, empirical uh, verification. And then he has final cause, which I would claim uh, is also uh, directly uh, related and indispensable uh, in, under, in understanding life, because one of the term, one other term which I did not list here that he uses. Uh, to describe formal cause is um, entelechia, entelechy, which is the final stage of realization of uh, in substantial form or actual uh, in, an, in a given being. And this is a tele so it brings together form and teleology in one, in a way, this term, entelecheia. So what is Aristotle's contribution uh, to contemporary attempts at defining life? Well, again, he offers us an interesting metaphysical uh, grounding for uh, those uh, properties uh, of life. Uh, because the phenomenological enumeration of, uh, that scientists may give and contemporary philosophers of science it raises fundamental ontological questions. Why do living entities continue as wholes? Why do they process energy in a way that maintains their stability? What grounds their capability of flexible control uh, of their own internal dynamism? What grants the uh, animate entities powers, uh, powers to grow, reproduce, reproduce, and evolve? Why do they cease to be in a seemingly programmed way? So if we don't want to 
treat those properties of life enumerated as you know as brute facts uh, and uh, if we want to answer to the question what holds them together so that they uh, you know uh, form uh, i don't know uh, or guarantee uh, that a given entity is alive we need uh, for aristotle at least a metaphysical uh, grounding and this is his uh, hylomorphism on this second level of uh, uh, material and formal causation now a more theoretical approach to defining life today that goes beyond a simple uh, enumeration of those properties of life that I listed at the beginning. Uh, so when it goes towards a non-reductionist uh, interpretation of what is alive, uh, it oftentimes uh, intro invo involves or introduces the category of emergence. So uh, here... Uh, those who follow this route, they see life as one of the many phenomena where an unprecedented global regularity is generated within a composite system by virtue of the higher order consequences of the interactions of those composite parts. In a strong ontological version of the theory of emergence, uh, a new category is being introduced that is downward causation. Uh, so uh, it is a sort of global or holistic determination of the lower constituent parts of entities, which remains in synergy with the bottom-up causal activity. As commonly known, though, uh, the greatest difficulty of this scheme uh, is... Uh, the problem with this downward causation and the question about its nature. The difficulty is that uh, is this, those who support this theory, they would like to support uh, the rule of physical causal closure. So all causes are physical in nature. And at the same time, they would like to acknowledge the novelty and irreducibility of downward causation. So they would like to say downward causation is a cause among all physical causes in nature, but at the same time, they would like to say it's something different in a way. So in what way? Uh, and this difficulty is addressed uh, uh, and then discussed, uh, has been discussed for several years uh, and first addressed in a famous article by uh, Jago and Kim, uh, who gives an example of mental causation. I give uh, um, an example of pain and escape reaction, and his claim is that uh, causation happens in, at the neural state, uh, so maybe it's enough. Uh, well, emergentists would say, no, it's not enough, uh, but can you have like causation going on the like at the emergent level and uh, the... Uh, more basic uh, level at the same time, and how do they, uh, you know, work together? So the claim is that downward causation is uh, is the causation that is necessary for the neural uh, state and to uh, to produce the emergent uh, phenomenon of escape reaction. But Jagiewon Kim says, well, if downward causation is, he asks a critical question: if downward causation is conceived as an efficient cause, then we have an overdetermination and everything collapses to efficient causation on the, at the base uh, or at the level of neural 
uh, interaction interactions. Uh, but and if downward causation is conceived as non-efficient cause, physical causation uh, causal closure is violated. So what uh, Aristotle's or near Aristotelian approach that embraces substantial form because not all. I would rather say the minority of contemporary New Aristotelians would embrace the notion of substantial form, but those who do, they may argue that downward causation can be interpreted in reference to formal and final causation, which are different types of causation, but they are natural causes and they are strongly related to a new type of efficient causes that, uh, yes, merge on this higher level of uh, causation. So in a way, at least, the physical causal closure is kept. So this is uh, one of the uh, propositions on the side of uh, Aristotle uh, and Aristotelian scholarship today. And obviously, the revival of teleology, where today more and more biologists agree that teleology is fundamental uh, for understanding and defining life. Uh, teleology is crucial in understanding holism, metabolism, and all those aspects that uh, were uh, listed uh, here uh, before. Now, moving to uh, the reflection on the origin of life. Uh, here, contemporary philosophers of uh, biology, they note that uh, we may speak about two approaches on a meta level of uh, analysis of this uh, field of studies. So we have bottom-up approach, which departs from envisioned pre-biotic uh, pre chemistry, and then referring to physics, chemistry, and biology, we know, strive to specify the way in which life evolved from it. But we may have also top-down approach, which begins with current biological taxa, referring to paleontology, uh, comparative biochemistry, and uh, phylogenetic inference, attempts to specify the nature and the timing of the origin of life. So these are different approaches. Uh, both of them have problems to, uh, to them. Uh, and the question is, how do they cooperate? And then how uh, and whether we can actually produce one scenario that will uh, like uh, be an outcome of both uh, these of these approaches. They also ask a question about uh, the role of uh, evolutionary theory here. We uh, like to use and we say uh, all the time about uh, here in this field about the evolution of uh, life. But the difficulty is that many traditional and hotly debated problems in philosophy of biology, uh, evolutionary biology, including units and levels of selection, the character of replicators, uh, they uh, become even more difficult in the context of origin of life studies, which speak about a world of quasi-independent and near-decomposable protobiological chemical systems. So can you apply the same categories that we use in uh, evolutionary biology uh, referred to organisms that we know uh, today or uh, established organisms in the uh, history of life. Uh, can we use the, the, the same categories uh, in the origin of life studies? And then they also refer to the time framework and how it dramatically changed actually when you compare uh, it, uh, the situation in the 60s uh, and today when uh, life is considered to be much, much, much older and the question is how it affects the question uh, to what extent life uh, was possible to emerge spontaneously or not. Now, from the classical point of view, a critical question uh, is obviously 
the principle of proportionate causation that Father Dominic mentioned uh, before. So uh, the principle says it, it has been defined in many ways uh, or similar ways at many points of Aristotelian uh, corpus and the Thomistic corpus. So now the question is, can something that is less perfect give an origin to something that is more perfect? There has been several responses uh, proposed. First, the first one says, well, let's be honest, if we treat this rule uh, literally, then most of the reactions that we observe should not happen or, did, or require direct divine intervention because most of the reactions that we can uh, observe and like perform in laboratory bring into existence entities that have new properties that are unlike the properties that the causes have. So what do you do with that? So some claim that, well, we have to, in a way, reinterpret this uh, definition or this uh, uh, principle. It speaks about an adequate cause proportional or commensurate uh, cause uh, and not necessarily saying that there needs to be precisely this perfection, the same perfection in a cause and its effect. But then what constitutes this ad uh, adequacy uh, remains a question. Others claim uh, that we should be careful here and if we uh, translate this rule into the claim uh, of proportional causation, into the claim that uh, the, the effect has to be as perfect as the cause is, well, let's look at the notion of perfection. Uh, on the Aristotelian notion of perfection, uh, an organism, uh, or I would say Aristotle, ties perfection with the completion of an entity within its own nature, as long as being can actualize it, its potential and its powers, it is perfected and it is perfect. Uh, whereas on the Neo-Platonic uh, understanding of perfection, you always have this one, which is most perfect, and then those grades of lower and lower and lower perfection. And then you always compare uh, those uh, creatures uh, that you look into with the perfect one. So uh, the problem then remains on the Neoplatonic scheme, but the claim at least is that Aristotelian metaphysics allows various beings to be considerably different in quantity, quality, and scope of their active and passive properties, and yet be equally perfect within their own natures, right? So this is, uh, this is at least a proposition. Then Edward Fazer uh, proposes another uh, way out of uh, this problem. So he says that uh, whatever, so he says that what the principle is trying to say is that whatever is in an effect must, must also be present in the total cause in some way or the other, either formally, which is as actualized, or virtually or eminently. So we could think here about the extrinsic presence, so thinking about the vir virtual presence we may think about extrinsic presence of a given perfection or its parts or aspects in what he calls a total cause of a given entity, where we nowadays, but even Aquinas knew that, but to a lesser extent, that we are dealing with causal matrices in uh, reality, and all those changes are very complex, especially in uh, terms of uh, life and life coming into existence. And the cause may be elevated 
by the supernatural uh, concurses of first uh, cause such that it is capable to give what by nature it does not have. So this is something that uh, Marine uh, 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 suggests. Then uh, we have interesting proposal uh, uh, offered uh, by, um, what's his name? I forgot his name. Um, anyway, uh, the claim is that we usually don't pay in, uh, attention to uh, to other, as when we speak about the perfection of uh, new uh, things that come into existence that were not here before, uh, we uh, usually uh, neglect uh, that those new higher powers and dispositions are usually accompanied by new difficulties, problems, defects, and vulnerability. Uh, so, I don't know, a tree outside there may be still there when I'm dead, and I'm so much more perfect as an organism than a tree. Uh, so the claim is that mm, the complexity rises. There are new powers, new perfections uh, present, but it comes at the cost of those organisms that are more complex, oftentimes being more, more, more vulnerable, and therefore the net level of perfection uh, remains uh, the same. And then Brian Carl from the University of St. Thomas in Texas uh, he, uh, in Houston, Texas, he claims uh, that when we read this principle of proportional causation, both in Aristotle and Aquinas, we have to understand their understanding of causation, where they speak about a whole hierarchy of causes. And so that would be a version of the total cause argument by Phaser, or approach uh, offered by Phaser, which, where this total cause is now understood even broader because there is God, angels, and not only uh, the most immediate uh, material uh, causes. So whether this any of those answers satisfies you or not, uh, these are at least propositions that are being offered today. The last question I would like to ask, I'm sorry if I will go a little bit more than 45 minutes, is the theological account of the origin of life. So something that was addressed today uh, already uh, from a mm, a biological uh, point of view which reaches towards uh, theology, which is wonderful that we have biologists like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, unlike uh, unlike uh, Marine and what you said, the majority of uh, biologists today claim uh, that uh, uh, they take the naturalist uh, uh, stance towards the big questions and including the origin of life. So they uh, reject the supernatural uh, design uh, entirely. Uh, Stuart Kaufman, a very important figure in original of Origin of Life studies, he claims that life has emerged in the universe without requiring special intervention from a creator God. Is not nature itself creativity enough? What more do we rely on it of God? Uh, really need uh, of God. Uh, well, this approach, which is a we may call it naturalistic approach, may, uh, does not have to be uh, uh, atheistic, uh, especially for Thomists, where we can speak, as you, all of you know, about first uh, and principal uh, causation of God and secondary and instrumental causation of the creatures, where secondary causes, like instrumentalists in an orchestra, uh, they uh, bring changes, the realization of which lies within the scope of their natural dispositions. They can learn how to play an instrument. And instrumental causes, which would be instruments in their hands, uh, they uh, bring changes, the realization of which lies beyond the scope of their disposition. So we have the notion of divine action, 
which is concurrent and not competitive. And therefore, one might argue that the origin of life um, is uh, an, an outcome of a concurrence of divine and created action, where God works to secondary and instrumental causes and there's no need for uh, direct intervention. So life, uh, we may say, have emerged spontaneously as an outcome of natural causes, which nonetheless operated as secondary and instrumental causes uh, moved by God. Now, I would argue that you may find a strong argument uh, in Aquinas in support of this uh, line of thinking, and not only the one that says that God would like, uh, that this scheme or this model emphasizes, uh, you know, the beauty of uh, secondary causes and uh, their value in the eyes of God. Uh, there is also a more, uh, what, uh, I would say ontologically scientific uh, understanding on the side uh, argument on the side of Aquinas, where Aquinas believes that creation ex nihilo happened instantaneously, but not all types of things were present from the beginning. He takes it from uh, Augustine. Things were hidden in the potentiality of mother. Uh, he uh, well, he refers either directly or indirectly, rather indirectly, but still uh, to uh, the concept of rationes seminales uh, from the Stoic philosophy employed by Augustine. So Aquinas would say this, plants and trees might have been produced in their origin or causes, that is, the earth received the power to produce them. Here it's the Genesis which says, let the, where God says, let the earth produce plants. Plants are brought into existence, well, for Aquinas it seems naturally. Uh, in the Potentia we find this passage where he says this, the production of plants from the earth into actual existence belongs to the work of propagation, since the powers of the heavenly body as father uh, and the earth as mother suffice for their production. Hence, the plants were not actually produced on the third day, but only in their causes. And after the six days, they were brought into actual existence in their respective species and natures by the work of government. So without the necessity of direct divine intervention. And since plants for Aquinas are the simplest living organisms, then you would have, or at least you may build an argument that Aquinas would agree that they, uh, that life originates spontaneously without direct divine intervention. Maybe if he heard, heard the lecture that, was, uh, that preceded mine today, he would have changed his mind and said, well, maybe uh, it's not true because in terms of Animals, especially higher animals, he actually says that the direct intervention of God was necessary. Now, those who claim that life is, uh, is an outcome of direct intervention, well, we may find uh, at least two major arguments. The first one, uh, I will go five minutes beyond my time, I'm sorry for that. No conclusive uh, theory of life's origin has been offered in natural science, despite the progress of sciences. We have heard how many... Uh, hypothesis we have. Therefore, the claim is we should now embrace uh, the, uh, the idea that uh, life uh, came into existence through direct uh, divine intervention. Those who argue against this position would uh, obviously say that science should never give up and we should always look for those natural uh, causes and introducing God in this way uh, sounds like an argument uh, from uh, God of the gods. But then you may push back and say, so is there any place here where uh, actually we could introduce God in this way or it's not possible at all? Another argument uh, 
developed by David Oderberg, surprisingly, I think in a way, uh, knowing his uh, attitude, he supports classical uh, thought, but I always thought that he would rather uh, argue in terms of a natural emergence of life without direct divine intervention. But he says we have to distinguish transient causation and immanent causation, where transient causation passes from an agent to something else which is outside, whereas immanent causation originates with an agent and terminates in an agent. So here's the argument he builds. The essence of life, he says, uh, is immanent causation, not just action for a purpose, but for the agent's own purpose. Transient and immanent types of causation are not only fundamentally different, but also mutually exclusive. These are quotations from him. In reference, now this is my comment, in reference to a uh, principle of pro pro proportionate causation, then he concludes that only the agent that shows immanent causation, that is life, could give origin to life in general and more specifically to life on earth. This is his argument. You may agree with it. You might question it on actually all three um, uh, propositions here. The first one, well, uh, to, first of all, to say that the essence of life is immanent causation, I think is wrong, because the essence of life from Aristotelian point of view that he supports is substantial soul, uh, form which is soul, and then immanent causation is, in a way, uh, the outcome of there being soul, uh, actualizing primary matter in a given way. But also to say that uh, immanent causation refers only to living creatures, I think you may question it. Uh, because all creatures, uh, living and non-living, for Aristotle would have an intrinsic, uh, you know, uh, immanent causation. And then to say that uh, they, uh, immanent and uh, transient causation uh, are fundamentally uh, different, but even mutually exclusive, is too much to say. Because we may have, we may give many examples of uh, their inter interrelatedness actually where you need uh, some uh, let's say uh, you know uh, exchange with environment uh, in order to achieve certain level of intrinsic causation or you need an intrinsic causation to then perform some uh, uh, relationships with uh, you know uh, things outside of uh, of a given being and then, uh, in terms of, again, the principle of proportional causation, it, you could argue that a matrix of living, uh, of, of non-living agents characterized by their proper transient powers and immanent goal-directedness can give origin to the first animate entity, which shows a new type of uh, teleology and a new type of this intrinsic causation. This is uh, the former last slide. I'm sorry, I'm running uh, a little bit maybe too fast right now. Recently, uh, at the conference that we had in Rome this year, uh, William Carroll, another very important figure in uh, this field of science and religion, surprisingly, uh, to me in a way, knowing his papers that he has written before on the origin of life, he claims he embraces the position uh, that it required direct divine intervention, and he says this, if inanimate things were in themselves to possess the power to cause living things to come to existence in some way, then it seems that they would have to be alive themselves. Well, what do you mean by in some way? If you mean formally, yes, they would have to be alive. But if you would think about this possession of uh, this possibility to uh, give origin to something that is live virtually, then that would be a game changer, in my opinion. 
If there is, or so it seems, we could say no immanent causality whatsoever, either formally or virtually in non-living substances, then the origin of life would require the direct intervention of uh, God. But then again, he doesn't specify what he means by virtual presence, and you could again make the same argument that uh, if the virtual presence is a presence in a total cause of, uh, you know, this possibility to to, uh, to uh, educe uh, the first uh, substantial form of a living creature from the primary uh, mother, then maybe it does not require the uh, direct divine intervention. So I think both positions are possible and there are arguments uh, for and against on both sides. What will be the future of the origin of life studies? Well, it remains a puzzle, and most of the philosophers, and I believe theologians, agree that it will uh, remain a puzzle. One of the philosophers of biology, contemporary philosophers of biology, says that it is a, a jigsaw puzzle that tempts but resists simple historical narrative, the origin of life, and probably uh, this will uh, remain an idle speculation. This is a more pessimistic approach, unfit for serious scientific investigation or worse fit only for unresolvable uh, confrontation of science with religious beliefs. I think we should be more optimistic uh, because on the way uh, we have learned so much about what living uh, entities are and we should be hopeful um, to learn more uh, even if we do not find or will not find one clear definition of life and we will not uh, be able to uh, conclusively say that it did or did not require uh, the direct divine intervention. Thank you very much. I'm sorry I went a little bit too long. A comment on your top-down and bottom-up scientific approaches to understand the origin of life. There's a third approach, which is the horizontal approach, which is you look for places elsewhere where life okay. exists and has, you know, demonstrably had a separate origin, although that part has some technical issues associated with it. Um, if you do find that life began somewhere else in an environment that arguably was isolated from that of the Earth, now you have two origins of life. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, uh, you know, does that make the origin of life something that is scientifically more tractable because you have something that is biochemically different and gives you a perspective which you didn't have before? All of those are question marks at the end of them, of course. Um, but that, I would argue, is a, a third separate way to try to mm -hmm. approach this problem, which I agree remains an attractable problem. Okay, thank you. Okay, we're back here. Um, thank you so much. I was wondering if you could elaborate more on the distinction Aquinas raises between uh, plant life and animal life, or you said that there's a difference between how, um, or at least there's an implication that plant life uh, did not require direct divine intervention, whereas another form of life did. Mm -hmm. uh, if you could elaborate that on that, I'd really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, so I have actually a quotation from his uh, his on um, his commentary on uh, the sentences of Peter Lombard. Uh, so he says this, some things came into being neither through motion nor through generation, 
because of the necessity that generation always generates what is similar in species. For this reason, the first members of the species were immediately uh, created by God, such as the first man, the first lion, and so forth. Uh, so um, he understands uh, it, I believe, in this way, uh, that plants uh, are very primitive and they just can come out uh, from the soil, uh, as uh, Genesis says. Whereas, I mean, this is actually his reading Genesis, basically, and it is a rather literal, actually, reading of Genesis, again, after Augustine. Whereas, uh, even in Genesis, uh, human beings, they do not simply, uh, by uh, only by the, the action of natural causes, emerge from, uh, from the soil. They do and they do not, right? Uh, and he actually also employs here uh, the understanding of uh, of their proliferation, and he thinks it's complex enough that uh, it could not have started. This is how I believe I understand it could not have started in a purely uh, natural way. But to say that it is completely like outside of what happens in nature would also be not uh, relevant. So I guess. Uh, but for what is important for him is that. I believe we could interpret it this way. It happens in the realm of nature, but it does require direct uh, divine intervention. Uh, and I think it's because of the complexity of, of what these are. Uh, I believe this is how he understands it. I don't know. Thank you, Father. Uh, can you help me understand um, the... Yeah, like when in the case of where something a higher cause elevates the causality of a lower thing um, in in an instrumental way, I suppose, Um, how that does or does not actually change, like, the ontological reality of that thing that's been elevated. Because it seemed like you were suggesting that in the case of, like, inanimate objects seemingly being elevated Uh uh, and used instrumentally by a higher cause, they actually lose in some way, their inanimacy. Um, so yeah, if you just kind of like extrapolate on that yeah, a bit. That's a very good and a very difficult question, and I think very few actually reflect on this. And um, I think that, I mean, one of the points of reference we could make here is the reference to uh, the perfection of being. Uh, and in what I do, for example, when I speak uh, about the evolutionary uh, transitions, uh, I, or just not even evolutionary transitions, just just giving uh, you know uh, a new life to or bringing new life into this world, uh, either in animal or uh, human world. Uh, so I, I distinguish the three aspects of being: uh, coming into being, persisting in being, and being in itself as a perfection. And then I believe that you could, within this metaphysical framework, you could say uh, that by their action, parents, for example, of uh, dog parents, they bring into existence, they help an organism to persist in existence considerably, especially uh, higher animals at the beginning of life of a new organism. But then, so here they are secondary causes. They do what belongs to their nature. 
and in these aspects of being, they uh, they are responsible, uh, right? But still, God works with them, but it doesn't uh, change them at all. And then, when it comes to the perfection of S in itself, Aquinas would say, this does not belong uh, to them uh, to give, but they still give it because they procreate. Uh, so they give it as instruments, right? But for him, I guess, uh, that would not change uh, their uh, dispositions and what they are. Uh, and it's interesting because you could say that there are aspects of existence that they actually do give, uh, and it belongs to them to give. But then there is this one deepest, actually, aspect where they uh, are instruments, and yet... Uh, in this regard, uh, God uses them and he gives it through them, but it does not change their own dispositions. Uh, whether it satisfies us or not, I don't know. But uh, I don't even know if it satisfies me. And I think it's a very difficult uh, uh, question, right? Uh, because, um, yeah, uh, what would mean this elevation? Uh, what, what it would mean? That does it elevate them? Uh, for a longer, I mean, does it elevate them in a way that they have new dispositions that stay with them, or does it elevate them for this particular uh, instantiation of like a new entity? Mm. These are, I think, good questions, and I think an open field uh, for those uh, who are in uh, divine action uh, to actually explore. Thank you. Thank you, Father. I have a question about. Uh, formal causality, and you identified two levels, the first and the second level of formal causality, um, wherein the first was the empirically verifiable form, um, perhaps the collection of accidental forms. Which we well, I would, say, I would say the empirically verifiable aspect of what it means to there being substantial form. Okay. Okay. And then also the substantial form, which uh, underlays that. So if we could... Um, put this more directly in conversation with what Professor Pondick said this morning about the soul. Uh, where would that fall in the physical yeah. uh, and the metaphysical understanding? So it's a, it's a very good and, again, uh, difficult question. So uh, I may be wrong here, and I may be misinterpreting uh, what uh, you said, Professor Pondick, but I think that... Um, um, what you mentioned, those uh, as relationships uh, between biomolecules, uh, that in a way I understood, correct me if I'm wrong, constitute their being so. Uh, I would say it's, on my scheme, it's in reverse. Because there is so, we have those, uh, this, uh, those relationships. And I agree with you. If we manage to go to the laboratory and, cons like, produce all those relationships, then I would say we would then lead to the situation where all those things go through substantial change. The soul is educed from the potency of matter, and yes, it begins to function as a living being. But, uh, uh, but again, it is form that makes it to what it be, and those relationships would be... Uh, would be the signs of there being life and not constituting uh, there being life. But whether it was so that would be that would be I think the most difficult point where we would try to 
uh, actually talk across the fields of this philosophical uh, scheme and this uh, and, and biology. 